Well, howdy, Pastor Mark Driscoll Thank you for letting me help you learn God's Word. And if you want to learn more, go to markdriscoll.org. I've got a weekly newsletter answering your questions, daily devotions, blogs that are Bible teaching and their orientation, and a small mountain of sermons going through lots of books of the Bible. So join me at markdriscoll.org and we'll help you learn even more of God's Word. How many of you business guys? Business guys? If something goes wrong at the company, who's held responsible? CEO, right? Or the manager, whoever's in the position of leadership. How many of you are former athletes or coaches? Something goes wrong in a sports team, who's held responsible? The coach, the coach, the coach. In, uh, in the military, uh, an offensive does not go well, who's held responsible? The highest ranking officer. We call those people the head that ultimately everything rises and falls with leadership, what the Bible uses for leadership is the language of, of the head, the one who's in charge, the one who's in authority, the one who bears ultimate responsibility. What if things aren't going well in your home? Who's responsible? Not as enthusiastic as I was hoping. If things are not going well in your home, who's ultimately responsible? The man is, the man is. I'll give you a verse. It's in Ephesians 5, 22. Um, I don't know why this isn't clear because I'll just be honest with you. This seems fairly straightforward to me. The who? It's not a coin flip, just so you know. It could go either way. The husband is the head. Doesn't say he should be, could be, might be, would be. He is. So here's the deal. If you're married, you got kids, you got a household, you got a family, you got a home, you are the head. The question is not whether or not you're the head. The question is whether you're a life-giving or a death-bringing head of household. The question is whether you're responsible or irresponsible. The question is not, are you the head? The question is, what kind of head of household are you? That's the question. It's crazy to me that we even have arguments and debates about this, and we could do this all day, but anybody who knows the Bible knows that this is not the only time that the Bible says this or demonstrates this. It's a clear, consistent, constant theme. So I wanna spend our time ultimately talking about what it means to be the head. It doesn't mean that you're the boss. It doesn't mean that you're the bully. It doesn't mean that your wife is less than you. You're both equal as God's image bearers. It doesn't mean to be, your, you're to be domineering or overbearing. What it does mean is that you bear additional responsibility and you make a particular impact. Some of you would say, I grew up in a home and I didn't even have a dad. Let me tell you this. He made a tremendous impact by his absence. Men make a tremendous impact, whether they're present or absent, their participation or lack of participation is tremendously felt. By head of household, I mean that you bear additional responsibility. What this means is that God holds your wife accountable for her behavior, holds each of the children accountable for their behavior, holds you accountable for your behavior, but you also bear some measure of responsibility for their relationships, for their life, for their flourishing, for their well-being. If I could give you an analogy, your home is like a garden. Who's the gardener? You are. Some guy's like, it's all weeds. I hate my garden. You're the gardener. You're the gardener. It's your job to tend to that woman, to tend to those children, to tend to that household and not just be unhappy with the fruit in your garden, but to be the gardener who does the nourishing and the pruning and the cleaning and the clearing so that there can be a harvesting of righteousness in your home. You are the head. And it starts with a single man taking responsibility for himself. 
And then it allows him to pursue a woman and then take responsibility for their marriage. And then them to have children and take responsibility for the remainder of their family. Now, all of this starts in Genesis 3. And tell you the story of Genesis 3, and this is the pattern of our first father that all men tragically fall into. So here's the story. God is perfect. God makes everything perfect. God makes the man perfect. God brings to the man a perfect woman who's naked. This is the story, right? How many of you, you're like, I'd like to sign up for those variables, please. That, that's, that's the world that, that, that God creates. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. And then a serpent comes in. We read in Revelation chapter 12 and Revelation chapter 20 that the serpent is Satan. So an angelic being, fallen being, rebellious being slithers in and he is imperfect and he enters into that which is perfect. And he begins to have a conversation. Does he have a conversation with the husband or with the wife? Who does he have a conversation with? The wife. Did the wife need to have the conversation, yes or no? No, she could have said, we listen to the Lord, we don't listen to those who are contrary to the Lord. Instead, she had a conversation with the Lord. The Apostle Paul says at least twice that she was deceived. She meant well, but did bad. You need to understand that the daughters of Eve sometimes are that way. They mean well, but do bad. They mean well, but do bad. And, and when bad happens, then they're like, well, I was trying to help. Well, okay, that, that's a good intent, but there is a proper way and an improper way to be particularly helpful. What happens then is she is told a lie, and now this lie is going to be acted upon. And the lie is that you're not like God, that you can become like God if you disobey God and live your life separate from God, which is the essence of sin. God had already made them in his image and likeness and the, the serpent comes along and says, if you will sin, you'll be like God. They were already made in the image and likeness of God. So he promises to give them something that only God can give them, something that God has already given them. Now they've got a decision to make. Do we believe God or disbelieve God? Do we obey God or disobey God? And there is a particular tree, it's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's the only forbidden thing. So God said you could partake of any tree in the garden. There is only one tree that you cannot partake of. That is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I need you to see that God creates a life of grace with very little law. Most of what God allows is yes, and occasionally he says no. You need to see that God is a, a red light dad. He's not a, excuse me, he's a green light dad, not a red light dad. A red light dad is this. No, 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 no. You can't do any of that. God is a yes, 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 yes. What about that? Well, that's a no. God has a lot of green lights and a few red lights. God says you're free to eat of any tree in the whole garden, anything you want, green light, one red light, don't eat from that tree. Where is that tree, gentlemen? It says it's in the middle of the garden. You know where temptation's gonna be? In the middle of your life. It's gonna be in the middle of your life and you gotta learn to walk around it as an act of obedience and holiness. So here they are, the enemy lies to them, says you need an independent identity apart from God. You should disbelieve, disregard, disobey God. You should sin against God to find your fullness and potential. The one thing that God doesn't want for you is actually a good thing, not a bad thing. And then here's the question, who partakes first of the forbidden fruit? 
Adam or Eve? Who partakes first? Eve partakes. The Bible then says, she gave some to her husband who was where? With her. There's an old Puritan proverb, I love the Puritans, but it says, when Adam was away, Eve fell astray. That's not the way that it went down. Here's how it went down. She is having a, a satanic conversation and he is doing what? Nothing. He is saying what? Nothing. I don't know if he's watching TV. I don't know if the game's on. I don't know if he's checking his phone. I don't know if he's tuning up his carburetor on his old truck. I don't know what he's doing. I don't know if he's cutting his grass. I don't know if he's cleaning his hunting rifle. I don't know if he's daydreaming about fishing. I don't know what he's doing, but he's not doing what he's supposed to be doing. She partakes, hands some to him who was there with her, and then he partakes. The story continues. Genesis 3, I think it's verse 6, God shows up. God shows up, surveys what's happened, asks the first question in all of human history. What was the question? Who was the question to? The man or the woman? The man, who sinned first? The woman, who does God call out to first? The man, and he has the first question in all of human history. That question is this, where are you? Where are you? Where are you? God's question man is, where are you? Where are you? Where are you? That's headship. She sinned first, they're both held responsible and accountable, but he is called out first because as the head, he bears additional responsibility. Do you understand this? Do you understand this? Your wife and your children are also to some degree your responsibility. This is where guys would be like, my wife's a mess. Well, you better get to work, buttercup, because that's partly your responsibility. My kids are a disaster. Well, guess what? You're on the rescue team. You gotta go find them. You gotta love them. You gotta serve them. You gotta help them. Sin comes in two formats. Commission, I did something I was not supposed to do. Omission, I didn't do something that I was supposed to do. With your father, Adam, was his primarily a sin of commission or omission? Your sins are primarily omission too. I was dealing with a guy some years ago. His daughter had been dating a very bad guy who sexually assaulted and abused her through the course of the relationship. She held a lot of anger and hurt against her father, I believe understandably so. On a few occasions, she tried to get rid of this guy and this guy would sort of come back around and she was scared of him and she was younger and he was older and the whole thing was a disaster and the father knew. The father didn't say anything, the father didn't do anything, the father didn't insert himself, he didn't like conflict. If you don't like conflict, what you like is Satan to win. 
If Jesus didn't like conflict, he never would have got off his throne to come hang on a cross, but he was willing to get in harm's way and that's what love does. So I'm sitting there having this conversation with his father and this abused daughter and she is devastated and the father says, and I quote, I don't know why you're angry at me. I didn't do anything. I raised my voice more than a bit and I said, that's the problem. That's the problem. You didn't do anything. You didn't say anything. That's the problem. And we're all Adam's sons. And the problem is that oftentimes we don't say anything and we don't do anything. What are you not saying? What are you not doing? Where are you not engaging? Where are you not leading? You are the head. And what Adam did in that moment, he abdicated his headship and he handed it to the devil. And all of a sudden his wife is under the leadership, the headship of Satan. If you're not the head of your home, Satan is, which may explain why it looks the way that it does. How many of you, your mind just exploded? We're all Adam's sons. And sometimes guys who avoid the sins of commission think that they're holy and good guys, but they don't look at their sins of omission. I put food on the table, but do you put a Bible in their hand? I put a roof over the head, but do you put the Holy Spirit, the love of God, the truth of the gospel in their heart? I take them to church. Well, do you take church home? Are you their pastor? Are you their pastor? Not just the, the provider of that which is physical, but the provider of that which is spiritual. I'll never forget it. I was a brand new pastor as a young man some years ago. And uh, I taught this to the guys in, in my first church. And there was this cute little girl in a dress, adorable, on a Sunday. I got down on a knee. I, I always give kids suckers because my grandpa George, he drove an Oldsmobile and he always gave kids suckers. And there was always suckers in his glove box of his Oldsmobile. So I always had suckers for the kids and I gave this little girl a sucker and I said, uh, I said, it's really fun to be your pastor. She scrunched up her nose and she said, you're not my pastor. I thought, it's huh, a little rude. I'm not sure you're gonna get a sucker. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, my daddy told me he was my pastor. Good job, dad. What she was saying is if I want to study the Bible, I go to my daddy. If I need prayer for something, I go to my daddy. If I got a question, I talk to my daddy. 
the best, the best youth pastor only gets a few hours with your kids and you get 18 years. The best women's ministry director only gets a couple hours a week and you live with her. You're the pastor in your home. You're the head of your home. You're not supposed to be arrogant, but humble, not domineering, not overbearing, not mean-spirited, loving, life-giving. That's what it means to love your wife like Christ loves the church. That's what it means to lead your family as Christ loves and leads the church family. If you're not the head of your home, Satan is the head of your home. And what this is, this is covenantal thinking. We do not live in a world that has covenantal thinking. The Bible has covenantal thinking. I'll give you two examples, one biblically, one practically. There's a guy named Job in Job chapter one, verse five. His children go off and they have some sort of social event. And he's not sure because he wasn't there, but he's a little concerned that maybe his kids sinned against God. He's not sure. So it says in Job 1.5 that he brought their sin to the Lord to intervene and intercede on their behalf so that his children might be forgiven by the Lord if perchance they did sin. Do you see that? He's taking responsibility for the well-being of his family. Now, let me say this, I need to be careful with this because when I teach this, some men become overly responsible and then their family becomes irresponsible. I, I had a woman some years ago uh, I taught this and she committed adultery on her husband and then we met and she said, well, it's his fault, he's the head. I was like, no, wait a minute. No, no, you committed adultery, like you factor into this equation as well. Now I want him to take responsibility for the family and what happens in light of this crisis, but you can't just sin and then blame him for everything that happens. Irresponsible people like to push their responsibilities to overly responsible people. I want you men to be responsible, but not at the expense of your wife and your children being irresponsible. Do you get that? Covenant thinking though, is that the head, the husband, the father is responsible for himself and at least partly responsible for his wife and their children the wife and children are also responsible for their behavior, but the father takes a broader, more collective responsibility as the head. Let me give you a practical example. Some years ago, I've taught a long time, maybe if you've heard me, you've heard this analogy, but I took my kids swimming during the summer. And so we were at a pool um, on this vacation area <clears throat> and there was really nobody in the pool. So I get in the pool and you know, I'm flipping the kids and doing the thing. And next thing you know, it's me and my oldest daughter in the pool. And she was young at the time, you know, elementary school, not even in her teens, I don't think yet. She was a little girl, let's say six, seven, eight, nine, something like that. And this teenage girl walks into the pool wearing not enough clothing, okay? A very small bikini she comes in with two teenage boys. They jump in the pool. One boy swims over here, one boy swims over there. This teenage girl swims over to one corner, flirts with and kisses the boy, swims over to the other side of the pool, flirts with and kisses the other boy. My little girl is watching this and I'm in the pool with her. 
she swims over to me. Daddy, Daddy, did you, did you see what that girl did? I said, yeah. She said, Daddy, she kissed both of the boys. I said, yeah, she did, honey. I said, what do you think about that? She said, and I quote, it's really sad she doesn't have a better daddy. That's covenantal thinking. That's covenantal thinking. My little girl was right. This demonstrates the failure of a father. This demonstrates, it doesn't mean that the girl is not responsible, but it means that somewhere a father has failed. To love, cherish, nourish, protect, direct, instruct, honor his daughter. Who's the head of your family? You are. And if you're not the head of your family, Satan is. Now, God has a goal for your family, and that is godly offspring. Malachi 2, <clears throat> it's a great text. Um, it's in the Old Testament. And there are some guys who have failed to be good heads of their household. What they have done, they're God's men and they married godless women. You know why they married them? Because they were hot. That's what it says in the Hebrew, that they were hot, okay? And some single guys, I say this all the time, but you single guys are like, why are you with her? She's hot. So's hell, don't sign up for either. That's always my encouragement, okay? You're not just looking for a good time, but a good legacy. Not just a good time, but a good legacy. So you're looking for a godly woman of substance and character. And what happens is these men of God married these godless women, they start to have children with them, and then they just get very frustrated. True or false men, if you marry a woman that doesn't worship the same God as you, it's very difficult until you have children, and then it's very, very, very difficult because you can't agree on what's right, what's wrong, where we go to church, who we worship, who we pray to, if we pray, how we live, you don't agree on it. Let me say this, if you don't agree on who you worship, you don't agree on anything else. So these guys marry these women, these women are unbelievers, and then they have children with them and then they get frustrated with them, but it's not the women they were supposed to marry in the first place, maybe that's your circumstance. So these guys decide, we're just gonna divorce these women and go get some new women and start over. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning. These guys are just devastated because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. So these guys are going to the equivalent of the church. They're giving their tithes and offerings. They're praying, they're weeping, they're wailing, they're crying. God, why won't you hear and answer our prayers? Why won't you bless us? Why is life not going better? Do you guys feel that? The story continues, but you say, why does he not? Here's why. Because the Lord was a witness between you and the wife of your youth. to whom you have been faithless. Though she is your companion, she's supposed to be your friend and your wife by what? Covenant. 
There's a difference between contractual views of marriage and covenantal views of marriage. Covenants are different than contracts. Contracts are fine for business. You bring me siding for my house and I pay you. If you don't bring me the siding for my house, I don't pay you. That's the contract. A covenant is different. A covenant is I will love and serve you, not predicated upon your performance, but predicated upon my promise. You do not have a contractual relationship with your wife. If you do this, then I'll do that and we will all negotiate terms. I have said a lot of dumb things to my wife. I'll share with you what is perhaps the dumbest thing I've ever, would you like to hear that? The dumbest thing I've ever said to my wife. It was uh, early in our marriage. I looked at her and I said, if you work for me, I'd fire you. Okay. That did not help. <laughs> my wife looked at me and she said, I'm your wife, not your employee. Bazinga, you win. Drop the mic, game, set, match, the wife's the victor. She's right, she's right. At work, you have a relationship with people that is contractual. When you come home, your wife is not your employee. She is to be your companion in covenant. She's to be your friend in relationship with God. She doesn't work for you, she is to work with you glorifying God. And if your relationship with her is contractual, you need to meet these demands. And then what she's with, she's with a husband who's like a bad manager. I gave you the job description. Now you get your performance review. Next time do better. Otherwise we may need to get rid of you and bring in a younger, hotter version of you. How many of you wouldn't want that for your daughter? Then don't do that to your wife. Any guy did that to my daughter, we'd be reading the Old Testament and doing a lot of violence. That's what would happen. <laughs> you need to treat your wife the same way you want some man to treat your daughter. You're not in a contract, you're in a covenant. And every covenant has a head. This is where covenantal thinking is so important. Every covenant has a head. So the head of the covenant of salvation is Jesus Christ. The Bible says, who is the head of the church? Jesus Christ, we're in covenant relationship with him. He loves us and blesses us, not because we've earned it or performed, but it's his kindness that leads to our transformation and repentance. You are the head of your home. Now you are not the ultimate head. Jesus Christ is the head. So you're still under authority. You're not just in authority, you're under authority and you're to be under Jesus' authority and to treat your wife and your kids in the same way that Jesus treats you and treats the rest of his church. Any man who says, this really puffs me up with pride doesn't even understand. This should cause you to be very broken, to be very humble, to be very sober, to be very wise, to be very cautious, because all of a sudden you realize the weight of responsibility that you bear. Because what is the Lord looking for? I think there's a next verse after this. Did he not make them one? See, Contractual thinking is that there's two of us. Covenantal thinking is there is now one of us. 
with the portion of the Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is involved in the covenant of marriage, that the Holy Spirit is involved in the relationship, that the Holy Spirit wants to help you to love and forgive in their union. And what was the one God seeking? What is God looking for? Godly offspring. The point of the covenant is that there would be godly offspring, not just offspring, not just have a lot of babies. There are guys that have a lot of babies and they're not raising them. They're not loving them. They're not feeding them. They're not leading them. They're not providing for them. It's not just having a lot of babies, but having not just offspring, but godly offspring. You're supposed to be in covenant relationship with God and the head of that covenant is Jesus. You're supposed to be in covenant relationship with your wife and the head of that covenant is you. And then your goal with the Lord's help and the wife's help is to have children who become godly offspring. You know what's crazy is other world religions and cults have figured this out and they're beating us at our own game. Entire nations in Europe are being overtaken by other religions that have children and they increase in numbers with the goal of raising up their children to be faithful to their God and their laws and their religion and in so doing overtaking culture. Meanwhile, God's people oftentimes are not really pursuing godly offspring. There is forgiveness for every person who has in any way been involved in the murder of abortion, but a large percentage of abortions are even performed on women with boyfriends or husbands who claim to be professing Christians. That many of God's people have lost sight of this vision of godly offspring. That some of you meant you don't even wanna become fathers. And if so, it's how can I negotiate as few children as possible as my wife will allow me to negotiate? I'm not saying that birth control is a sin. I'm not saying that you can only handle so much financially or spiritually or physically. I'm not saying that you should just try and call dibs on be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it all by yourself with your tired wife. But I am saying that as men, we need to say that children are a blessing and godly offspring is a responsibility that we have. And it's an invitation and an opportunity that God gives. What does godly offspring look like? Let me give you a little bit of um, a historical example. How many of you have heard of Jonathan Edwards? He is arguably the greatest theologian in the history of the United States of America. History records that he would get up every day and he would pray for five generations of his family. That's a man who's thinking not just about a good time, but a good legacy. He would pray for his kids and his grandkids and his great-grandkids and his great-great-grandkids and his great-great-great-grandkids. Sociologists will talk about the law of five generations and that is your impact is felt on the earth for five generations. How many of you know that because you look at your family line and you realize that those who went before you, they made decisions that have implicated you for good or bad, for life or death, for flourishing or diminishing. And some of those decisions were made long before you were born. 
After you will come people with your last name and they will have to make a historical decision as to whether or not you were part of the problem or the solution. Jonathan Edwards prayed every day for five days of his family and here's what God did. He had 11 children. In his descendants, they were able to trace 300 preachers. I often hear single guys say, I don't wanna get bogged down with kids, I just wanna serve the Lord. If you raise kids that serve the Lord, you've just multiplied your effectiveness. And if they raise kids who serve the Lord, you've really multiplied your effectiveness. And if it can be one of those thousand generation runs that the Bible talks about, I'm sure that a couple million of you are gonna get a lot more done than you. He had 300 preachers, 295 college graduates, 100 missionaries, 100 lawyers, 80 descendants held public office. He had one vice president of the United States, Aaron Burr, 13 US senators, one state governor, three big city mayors, one US controller, 75 military officers, 65 college professors, 13 college presidents, 56 physicians, one dean of a medical school, and 30 judges. Godly offspring. Godly offspring. I want you guys to not just be thinking about the weekend, but the fifth generation. I don't want you single guys, you young married men, to not just be thinking about a good time, but a good legacy. I want you to be thinking about the future and your place in it even when you're gone because someone with your last name is part of your legacy and inheritance. How many of you guys have read the genealogies in the Bible? How many of you read them very fast and thought, why, why did we kill a tree for this? Why did we kill a tree for the Hebrew phone book? You men should just cling to the genealogies because what it shows is this father had these sons and they had these sons and they had these sons and it's showing godly offspring and ungodly offspring. It's showing legacy and lineage. When God puts genealogies in the Bible, it's not like he's looking for filler. It's that he is giving us ultimately his heart and that that is we would see our lives generationally and that we would invest our lives generationally and that we would divest our energies generationally. Now, I don't want you to raise your hand and I don't wanna you know, feed bitterness in your soul, but how many of you look back on your life and you look at your dad and your mom and your grandpa and your grandma and you say, I didn't receive much. I didn't receive much instruction. I didn't receive much godly counsel. I didn't receive much emotional support. I, I didn't receive any financial inheritance of note. How many of you did? You look at it, you say, actually, I was really blessed. Uh, they loved the Lord, they were generous, they were godly, they were wise, they were kind. They made a deposit in me and I, I started with the ball in the red zone. Some poor kids are born on the one. They got 99 yards to go. I was born in the red zone. I, I received something. My question is, what will you give? What will you give financially, spiritually, emotionally? What will you give? What will you leave? What will your deposit be? What will your legacy be? Because here's what Proverbs says. It's a great verse in the NIV version. It says in Proverbs 13, 22, if you've got the verse, please bring it up. 
a good person, some of your translations will say a good man, leaves an a what? An inheritance. If any of you have that bumper sticker, we're spending our children's inheritance, repent and go take it off. That's foolish thinking, that's not biblical thinking, that's selfish thinking, not covenantal thinking. Foolishness says, how can I consume everything I have? Wisdom says, how far can I extend it into the future? A wise person leaves an inheritance for who? Their children's children. It's trying to find a way to get the lineage of faith, of finances, of fidelity, as far into the future as you possibly can. Do you guys think about this? Do you have a plan for this? Or is it just, I went to work, I came home, I put a roof over the head, I put food on the table, I watched the game, I did my job. Those are sins of omission. What you are doing is good, but it's not everything you're supposed to be doing. Do you understand that? The goal is to leave an inheritance financially. The goal is to leave an inheritance spiritually. The goal is to leave an inheritance emotionally. The goal is at some point you start thinking about your children's children. How many of you older guys right now, you actually know who your children's children are because they're already here. You got your grandkids. How many of you, your dads, you've got your kids. How many of you are guys who are looking forward to becoming dads and grandpas? See, this is not the way the culture thinks, amen? One of the things that promotes foolishness is short-sightedness. I, I, I dealt with a guy recently, he said, I'm really tempted to commit adultery on my wife. I said, okay, do you want another man to get half of everything you've ever made or owned? Do you want him to tuck your daughter in bed at night? Do you want him to make love to your wife? And do you want him to have your grandkids sitting on his lap on Christmas? What do you think he said? No, then keep your pants on. Because it's cause and effect. And what happens is men tend to be very short-sighted instead of long-sighted. We tend to be overcome by the opportunity in the moment and not motivated down the road by the opportunity for the second, third, fourth, and fifth generation. Here's why I'm so passionate about this. I'll tell you about my family. We were the O'Driscolls, okay? I'm Irish. So I'm short with a Shrek-sized head and a thick neck, okay? We were Irish. We come from County Cork, Southern Ireland off the Baltimore Harbor in an area around Skibbereen. Not even making this up. We held castles, we were warrior clan, we ruled, and then there was political religious upheaval and we were displaced, we lost everything, we had to start over. And somehow my relatives, the men decided, hmm, okay, what's our, what's our backup career path? What's our next go forward plan? Pirates, we decided to be pirates, not even making this up. So Pastor Mark here to tell you about my family, we decided to become pirates. And so what we would do, we would wait for ships to sail through the Baltimore Harbor and we would row out and we would seize the ship and we would seize their cargo, right? One of the ships that we seized was a, a ship carrying wine from another country and we stole the wine so we're alcohol pirates Okay, this is not a great legacy, by the way. Um, alcohol pirates, it touched off an international incident to where then that country sent soldiers to enslave 
Irishmen in exchange for the robbing of the ship. So that's, that's what we're really famous for. I know this will shock you. We drank too much. <laughs> I know that snuck up on you, but that's what happened to my family. The men were sort of violent, sort of thuggish, alcohol drinking, wife baiting, sort of mean, violent kind of men. And you know what this is? This is our legacy. This is our history. This is my family. When Proverbs says, train a child in the way they should go, and when they grow old, they will not depart from it, that can be for good or evil. Sometimes you train a child in the way they should go, they don't depart from it. Sometimes you train a child in the way they shouldn't go, and sadly, they don't depart from that either. So in my family, guys, it was generation after generation after generation of drunken, violent, mean, dangerous, unhealthy men who were not good to their wives and not good to their kids. They didn't understand covenant. They didn't understand legacy. Sometimes they would go to church, but it was the women who were the very spiritual ones and the men were the very vulgar ones. And so that was the family that I grew up in. And, and ultimately famine hit, everybody died. And so it was relatives, men who boarded a coffin ship after like my great, great grandmother died. And they ended up in New York then they ended up in Grand Forks, North Dakota. My great, great, great grandfather, whatever it was, he married a woman because his wife had died of typhoid or starvation or something during the potato famine. They settle in Grand Forks, North Dakota. They become red potato farmers. That's where I was born. As soon as my mom got pregnant with me, she told my dad, we're leaving. I refuse to raise children in this environment. I thank God for that for my mom. So we moved far, far away and I didn't grow up there or around the extended family. I remember as a little boy going to meet my grandpa, visit my grandpa, he was dying. He had a beat up old little house, totally not taken care of. It was up on cinder blocks. One of the corners was held up by a car jack. I walked in, I'm the grandson. There are no toys, there is no food, there is nothing. My grandpa's got one cup, one plate, one fork, one knife, one spoon, lived all by himself, had nothing, had nothing. We're there to visit him, it's summertime like it is in Ohio. It's hot and it's humid. I'm a little kid, I'm like 10 or something. I'm bored to death. So I go look for something to play with. The only thing, the only thing I can find in the whole yard, the only thing I can find in the garage, there's nothing there, an old barrel, a steel barrel. It was so hot, I filled it up with water and I jumped in it and I pretended it was a pool. And that's how I spent all my time with my grandpa. That's my only memory of my grandfather. My grandfather didn't leave any inheritance financially, 
He didn't leave any inheritance spiritually. He didn't leave any inheritance emotionally. He didn't make any deposit. My dad and I both met Jesus. I forgive my grandpa. I, I hope in my heart I'm not bitter. But I look at it and it does cause me grief. Now that I look at my kids and my, my kids are getting older. I got three boys, two girls. I'm the father of four teenagers. Like, man, I wish I had stories to tell them about their grandpa. How he was a godly man or a hardworking man or a generous man or a wise man. As it is, he's the guy who lived in the broken down house held up by the carjack and the cinder blocks who had nothing when he got to meet his grandkids. He gave nothing, he said nothing, he did nothing, his deposit was nothing. And I remember as a little boy sitting in the barrel in the heat of the summer, literally saying to myself, this sucks. Because in my heart, I thought, I'm gonna go meet my grandpa. And I got there and I thought, this sucks. Because in my heart as a little boy, I thought, well, your grandpa's supposed to have something to eat or maybe a toy or something to do or at least some departing wisdom before he ends his life. Nothing. And I'm guessing if you ask my grandpa, he would say, I did a good job. I didn't cheat on my wife. I put food on the table and a roof over the head for my kids. That's not covenantal thinking. That's not responsible headship. That's not legacy leaving. That's not leaving an inheritance. Here's my question to you. What's your story? What's your family history? None of us men enters into human history alone. We all come from generations that literally were, they, your grandfather, your father, took the stage of history, played his role, walked off the stage of history, and then you walk onto the stage, it's your turn. What were the men like who came before you? What were the men like that came before you? What kind of man are you like? What kind of men will come after you? That's all legacy thinking. So I'll close with this analogy. Here's how I see it. Every time I read the genealogies in the Bible, this is what I visualize. And what a genealogy in the Bible is, it says, for example, there was Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? These are like links in a chain. They all belong to God. It's a father, his sons, his grandsons. They belong to the Lord. They work together. They serve together. There's this sort of chain of faith that continues. So let me ask you a few questions. How many of you, you're the first link in the chain? You're the first guy in your family to belong to the Lord Jesus. You're the first Christian. You're the patriarch. You're the beginning of the whole new family line. How many of you guys are first link in the chain? Some of you guys are first link in the chain. I was first link in the chain. I was first link in the chain. As far as I know, you know, maybe my grandpa met Jesus before he died. I don't know. I, I don't know. But as far as I could tell, I was first link in the chain. I got saved at the age of 19 in college. How many of you are not the first link in the chain? Your dad loved the Lord, your grandpa loved the Lord. You're somewhere down the chain. How many of you guys, you're way down the chain. You're like, man, actually, Mark, if I told my story, it'd be like, 
Well, grandpa loved the Lord and great grandpa loved the Lord and great, great, great grandpa loved the Lord and great, great, great grandpa loved the Lord and they love the Lord and they serve the Lord and they belong to the Lord. And I was just born into a family where it's like, man, what an inheritance, amen? What a legacy, what a story to tell my kids and grandkids. Hey, here's your great, great, great grandpa's Bible. It's all beat up, isn't that awesome? He's not here, but his legacy is. He's not here, but his impact is. He's not here, but his effect is. He's not here, but his love is because he made a deposit and he left an inheritance. One of the most extraordinary things that happened for me is I went from being the first link in the chain to not being the first link in the chain. My dad got saved. When I got saved, I started praying for my dad. My dad got saved. One of the most joyful days of my whole life was the day that I got to baptize my dad and my son. We were in Israel. We were on a trip to go see where Jesus did his life and ministry. And I baptized my son, Calvin, and I baptized my dad. And here we are, three generations in the Jordan River where Jesus was baptized. And we all belong to Jesus. And a curse is broken in my family. And a new legacy starts. And now my dad is the first link in the chain. And now I am the second link in the chain. And my son is the third link in the chain. And my dad, I'm, I'm 46. My dad's like 67, 68. He's gonna meet his great grandson who will be the fourth link in the chain. Isn't that wonderful? If your dad doesn't know the Lord, keep praying for your dad. If your dad doesn't know the Lord, keep hoping for your dad. If your dad doesn't know the Lord, keep talking to your dad about the Lord. Until he's dead, there's always hope. And one of the greatest things in your whole life is seeing your dad get saved. My dad gets up every morning, he sits in his chair, he reads the Bible that I gave him, and he prays for all of his kids and his grandkids. I'm so proud of my dad. I'm so glad that he's my dad. I'm so glad for the work that God has done in my dad's life. I'm so glad that my kids have a Christian grandpa. I didn't have on my dad's side a Christian grandpa. My kids have a Christian grandpa. Their grandpa spends time with them. He loves them. He's generous toward them. He blesses them. He has fun with them. He makes memories with them. It's a rich inheritance that he's depositing in them. And he was not a man who learned that from his father. He's a man who learned that from his other father. How many of you are first link in the chain? How many of you are somewhere down the chain? Let me ask a hard question. How many of you are the weak link in the chain? The men before you were believers. You could go either way. You are a link in the chain that is in the process of breaking. You're a weak link in the chain that needs to be welded up before it is altogether severed. You men need to know that the, the line into heaven is a single file line. And just because your great grandpa and your grandpa and your dad went before you, you need to fall in line with them. But there is no group salvation plan that ultimately you need to have your own relationship with God through Christ. And at some point, every man needs to take the faith of his father and make it his own. And that's the process of transitioning from a boy to a man. My hope, my prayer, my goal, my pleading, my last request is that none of you men would be sadly, tragically, the last link in the chain. My hope and my prayer is not that you would be the last link in the chain. 
that you would be the one who stops worshiping God, that stops leading your family, that stops praying, that stops giving, that stops worshiping, that stops leading the family in the purposes and the pleasures and the plans of God. My hope, my prayer, my pleading is that you would not be the last link in the chain, that you would be the head of your family who abdicates their responsibility and as a result leaves no legacy. And I love you and it's been an honor to be with you and it's a great joy to speak to you. But let me just say this, man. It's my job to tell the truth and it's your job to make a decision. Father, thank you for an opportunity to teach the men today. Lord God, I thank you for those who come from a long, strong line of faith. I pray that they would honor their father, their grandfather, their great-grandfather. I pray that they would not rebel, that they would not focus on what they didn't get, but what they did get, not on who those men were not, but who those men were. God, I pray that there would be a great appreciation for our fathers, a great forgiveness for our fathers and grandfathers. Lord, for each of us men, whether we're the first link in the chain, whether we are a link down the chain, whether we are a weak link in the chain, I pray that none of us would be the last link in the chain. I pray that as covenant heads, we would humbly take responsibility to lead our family so that there would be godly offspring, that our sons and our daughters and our grandsons and our granddaughters and our great-grandsons and our great-granddaughters would belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, would behave like the Lord Jesus Christ, would be with us in the presence forever of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, for those who are the first link in the chain, I pray for a double portion of your grace because they are breaking a family curse as a patriarch and they are starting a brand new family line. I pray, Lord God, for those who have inherited financially, spiritually, emotionally, that there would be gratitude and wisdom and stewardship and investment for their children's children. And Lord God, I pray for those weak links in the chain, those men who have one foot in the kingdom and one foot in the world. They have one foot into a great legacy and one foot into great misery that today, Lord God, you would weld them up, that they would return to you, that they would commit themselves to you, that they would walk with you as your sons, that you would be their father and that you would cause them to become a great strong link in an ongoing and long chain. Lord God, none of us entered into this world on our own. And when we leave, we all leave an impact. May it be an impact starting with our own family for our legacy, for your glory and others' joy. In Jesus' good name, amen.